history according to Luke 13, part 1, spoken by Pastor Kevin Swanson. Luke loves this one word that he uses over and over again in this biography of the life of Jesus Christ, and it's the word disciple. He, he uses it multiple times. Jesus uses it multiple times. And the truth of the matter is, even though it's like 50 times uh, being used in this book, it's not a word that we use very much outside of the church context. It's kind of one we're more familiar with here. And I think most of us understand the word disciple is kind of interchangeable with the word Christian or follower of Jesus Christ. And the whole idea is this is a person who's entered into a relationship with God through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And they are called now a disciple. Uh, Yes, there were the 12 original disciples in the Bible, but that term is not limited to them. It is a term that applies to every one of us who's in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That being said, there's, there's oftentimes a bit of confusion in our minds like, okay, so what does it actually mean to be a disciple of Christ? How does this live out in my day-to-day life. And, and I believe that the passage we're going to look at today uh, in Luke chapter 13 is going to help us answer that question. Because there's three little scenes today where Jesus is, is involved with an interchange with a group of people or telling a parable or, or some such thing. And in each of those three, we see a key aspect of a disciple of Jesus Christ. So by the time we're done today, we should have three markers in our minds that we can stand in front of the mirror and say, oh, is that my life? Is that evident in my life? Am I, am I living that? Or, or, or have I not moved to that place in discipleship yet? So I think it's that practical uh, what we're going to be looking at today. The, the three scenes, I'm calling the first one an OMG moment. You'll, you'll understand why when, when I read the passage, or maybe you've already read it. The second one I'm calling a short parable. And when I did this in sermon practice with the other pastors on Thursdays, uh, on Thursday, some of them felt like that was sort of a lame title for the second uh, scene in here. I said, well, do you have any suggestions? And nobody did. Uh, so there it is, a short parable. And the third one is a jailbreak, a jailbreak. So I'm going to read the passage uh, in its entirety, Luke 13, 1 to 17. You can follow along on the screen. If you've got your Bibles or your apps, you can follow along as well. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. 
When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered, You hypocrites. Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham's, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. This is the word of God for us today. Let's pray. God, as we enter into this passage in your word today, we want to do so with humility, and we want to do so with open minds and hearts. Uh, We know your word is truth. We know that you reveal yourself to us in the word, and many times you hold the word up to us as a mirror so it reveals who we are. And I just pray, God, that your Holy Spirit today would have full freedom in this room to do whatever you want to do with your word that it would be powerful and active in our presence as a church body and as individuals. And above all, God, we pray that you would be glorified today. In the name of Christ Jesus, I pray. Amen. Scene one, an OMG moment. Luke starts off by telling us there were some present at that time who told Jesus something. That's the way it reads in most of the Western translations of the Bible, that there were some people within this crowd, this group that was already around Jesus, and they sort of like shouted out to him, hey, Jesus, did you hear about this thing? Some of the Middle Eastern translations tend to be a little more culturally specific, and and in those translations, it reads this way, and some came at that time and told Jesus. So the difference is simply some people that were already there or some people who came in kind of breathlessly. Jesus, Jesus, did you hear? I think that's more the scene that we have here. And I call these guys the atrocity storytellers. Atrocity storytellers. You know the type. You may work with some of them. You may live with some of them. They, they love to be the first ones to share the scandalous news. If they hear something and they think you don't know, they'll rush to you. Did you hear about this and this? And really what they want is they kind of want you to come over to their side. They want you to go, oh, that's horrible. Oh, how could, oh my goodness. And they, they really are looking for some kind of a response. That's what was happening in this passage today. Uh, Luke tells us there in the, in the first verse, uh, he gives us some clues about this atrocity that they're talking about. Doesn't completely flesh it out, but he talks about Galileans who were Jewish people who lived up in the, in the province of Galilee. These were brothers of the folks that Jesus was with, some Galileans. Talks about Pilate, who was the Roman ruler in the land at that time. Pilate and the Roman military was a constant reminder that the Israelites were an occupied people. They had been conquered. They were under the thumb of the Roman Empire, as was much of the Mediterranean, and they hated the Romans with a passion. So Pilate's name is thrown in there. Something about blood. 
So there's some gore that's going on in this, uh, in this story that they're telling. And then something about sacrifices, blood being mixed with sacrifices. And as we piece these clues together, it appears that Pilate, the Roman leader, must have sent some of his Roman soldiers to punish some of these Galileans or something. And there was bloodshed, probably some death. And it happened in the very place and time when these Galileans were making sacrifices to God. So it's, it's, it's a horrible story. It's, it's, yeah, it's pretty graphic. And they're hoping that it's going to catch Jesus' attention. Because these guys who came with the story, they had two agendas with Jesus. The first was they wanted to kind of win Jesus over to their political position. And we know from, from secular history and from the Scripture that at that time when the Romans were in control, there were lots of little revolutionary groups that rose up. It's like, okay, we're going to be the ones. We're going to get the Romans out of here. And, and they were always beat back by the Romans. And it appears that these guys thought that Jesus would be a great addition to their revolutionary mo- movement. They, they knew Jesus was powerful, they knew Jesus had a following, that, that, he, that he attracted sometimes literally thousands of people, and they knew he was very wise, and they thought, wow, if Jesus would come over to our side, maybe we'd have the critical mass that we need to actually pull off a revolution and get our country back. Jesus can see right through the whole thing, and he doesn't even touch it. He has nothing to do with it. Why? Because he knew why he came, and he didn't come because of politics. He didn't come to be a political savior. He came to be a savior of souls. He came to bring the truth of God and the freedom that God offers to people. He didn't come to clean things up politically. That would happen much later. The second agenda item that these guys had was they were, they were trying, they, they were referring to a commonly held belief at that time that actually still exists to this day today. And it was this belief that says, if a really bad thing happens to somebody, you can trace it back to some really serious sin in their life. And, and literally, in the past week, I had somebody that was chatting with me and, and, and was going through some hard times. And this individual said, do you think that God is punishing me for something I did, it was like over a decade ago. And where Jesus responds to these, these, these guys by telling them, I tell you no, that was my response to this guy. It's like, no, God doesn't operate that way. Our, our God is a forgiving God. He doesn't drag stuff up out of our ancient past and say, I'm going to punish you for it years later. But this was a common belief that the people had there. And so when they talked about these guys in Galilee being killed, and then Jesus throws in his own story about some guys that were killed when a tower fell on them. And he says, do you think they were worse sinners than everybody else? I tell you no. I tell you no. So Jesus kind of quickly puts to rest the two agenda items that these guys came with. But then Jesus does something that I'm sure these folks found very annoying because he completely flips the script on them. He pulls this reversal. We've seen it many times in Luke. We're going to see it again where Jesus receives somebody right where they are, doesn't tell them to change, receives them right where they are, but then he takes them where he knows they need to go. I want you to just think about that for a second because that's exactly how Jesus deals with us. He doesn't tell any of us, oh, before you can come into a relationship with me, you've got to change all these things in your life. No, he says, right now, come. He says, but I'm not going to leave you there. 
And that's exactly what he did with these guys who came bringing the story to them. Because in verse 3, Jesus says to them, But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Now, if I was one of these guys bringing this scandalous story to Jesus, waiting for a response from Jesus, oh, that's terrible, let me join your movement, and all of a sudden Jesus is pointing the finger at me and saying, unless you repent, you will perish. I kind of wonder, well, where did that come from? Jesus, is not about me. Jesus is like, yeah, it is. This is about you. I don't know if you guys were here last Sunday or not. I know most of you were. Pastor Clayton was preaching about stewardship. He made one comment that caught my attention. He said, faithful stewardship is prioritizing what matters. As Jesus interacted with these guys, he knew that they had chosen wrong priorities. They were prioritizing things that had no eternal value. And Jesus knew if they continued on this road, on this path, it was not going to end well for them. And so the greater need here had nothing to do with politics or human suffering. The greater need had to do with these guys' lives and their eternal destinies. And Jesus says, unless you guys repent, unless you change direction, unless you get off this path, get your priorities straightened out, you, Jesus says, will perish. You're spending the best part of your lives Dedicated to something of very little value, certainly no eternal value. And he says, unless they change, it's going to end badly for them. Now, on the surface, this may seem very harsh. Jesus is saying, perish. You guys are going to perish. It sounds harsh, could sound judgmental or condemning. But the truth of the matter, church, is if you take a step back, what Jesus is doing is he's expressing profound love. For these guys, he loves them enough to not leave them where they are. He loves them enough to point out where their priorities need to be changed in their life. He's giving them an option to perishing. That's profound love on Jesus' part. So the first scene ends with Jesus saying, Repent or perish. The second scene, the short parable, um, has, has a little different twist to it. And before I get into it, I just want to say that whenever we come upon a parable in the Bible, when Jesus is telling a story, don't ever think that Jesus carries a book of parables around with him and he'll just flip through the pages and find one that applies to that certain situation. No, Jesus is like an artist with a blank canvas and he's creating the parable exactly the way he wants it. He knows his audience. He knows their needs. He knows who the audience is going to be down through time because he knows his parables are going to be told and retold. He has all that in mind, and he puts in the exact details that he wants in a parable to make the point that he's trying to make. So in this parable, when Jesus starts talking right away, we find out there's this vineyard. Jesus is talking about in verse 6. There's this vineyard. As soon as Jewish people hear the word vineyard, they have an immediate association with the people of God. Why do I say that? Because all throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament, the analogy is used of the people of God being a vineyard. And when the vineyard is flourishing, it's producing good grapes that are producing good wine, this is a picture of God's people living in obedience to him and being under the blessings of God. We see this picture often in Scripture. 
And sometimes, like in the Old Testament, the prophets would talk about a vineyard that was unproductive. It was not producing any grapes or it was producing bad grapes. This is always a picture of the people of God living in disobedience or rebellion to God and suffering the consequences of it. So to, to Jesus' Jewish audience that day, it's like, okay, it's a no-brainer. There's a, there's a vineyard. We get that. That's us, the people. And then Jesus puts a man in the parable, and the man is the owner of the vineyard. And again, the people are like, check, we get that. Because the owner of the vineyard is always God. Old Testament, New Testament, the owner of the vineyard is always God. So they've got those pieces in place. But then Jesus kind of throws them a curveball. Because here's this vineyard. There's always like a rock wall around it. It's surrounded, all these grapevines in it and stuff like that. And Jesus puts one tree in the vineyard. And he says it's a fig tree. And he says it has no figs. He says it's completely unproductive. Now the people are kind of like wondering, okay, what does that mean? What is that about? And Jesus goes on to say that not, not only is this fig tree unproductive, for three years it's produced zero fruit, but that its very presence in the vineyard has a detrimental effect on the rest of the vineyard. The, the owner says it's using up the soil. What he means is there's a finite amount of, of, of water. There's a finite amount of nutrients in the soil. And here's this tree that's sucking life out of the vineyard, yet producing nothing. So its presence there isn't neutral. It's actually a negative presence. And now it's up to us and the people that were listening to try to figure out, Jesus, what are you talking about with this fig tree? Well, thankfully, we get a clue a little later on in the Gospel of Luke. In chapter 20, I don't know how many weeks down the road that is, but come back. In chapter 20, Jesus tells another parable. And lo and behold, the parable has a vineyard in it, and it has an owner of a vineyard in it, and it has some tenants that the owner leases it out to. They're supposed to care for the vineyard, and they do a rather lousy job of, of doing that. And at the end of the parable... In Luke 20, verse 19, listen to what Luke says about the parable. It says, The teachers of the law and the chief priest, priests looked for a way to arrest him. That's Jesus. Looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. See, the religious leaders were smart. And when Jesus starts telling a parable and, and they realize that he's calling them out in the parable that, that it is not lost on them. And these guys got it. And they were angry at Jesus because Jesus is using a parable to say, you guys are pathetic when it comes to being spiritual leaders of this group. And what's worse is all the people got it as well. They understood that. And, and a lot of them understood that their spiritual leaders at that time were not leading them well. Church, I think what we are looking at here in the 13th chapter of Luke, is the same scenario where Jesus is pointing out unfruitful spiritual leaders that are living in the midst of the people, producing nothing and sucking spiritual life out of the community of God's people. It's not uncommon for Jesus to call out the spiritual leaders. We've seen it already in Luke. We're going to see it more as we move towards the end of the book. When they were unfruitful and their presence was hindering the spiritual health of the people, 
Jesus had little patience for them. What he is addressing here is a crisis of spiritual leadership among his people. Now, the parable doesn't end there because there's another individual that comes into it. There's this gardener, this, this keeper of the vineyard. And, and there's an intercession that's happening because when, when the owner is saying, it hasn't produced for three years, cut it down now, this other person is saying, wait a minute, time out. Can we just, can we be a little patient? Can I care for it a little bit? Can I break up the soil and put some fertilizer on it? Can we give it a second chance? So when we look at these two people in the parable, the owner of the vineyard who represents God the Father, who is this individual that comes along then and has a, an opposing voice? And some people have looked at this and said, well, that's Jesus. That's a picture of Jesus. You know, God's all about justice, and Jesus is about mercy, grace, and patience. Unfortunately, that doesn't hold up biblically because Scripture points us to a God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who are in complete unity with each other. And, and to have God the Father advocating for one thing on this side and to have God the Son opposing him on this side, this would signify a divide in the Trinity. And, and that doesn't stand up biblically. You, you can't bear that out. So there's something else going on here. and I, I believe what's happening is that Jesus is giving voice to two things that are at tension within the heart of God. And here's what I mean. God is just. He is a God of justice. And we're glad that he is. We, we plead for God's justice in our world today when we see so much injustice. Now, we don't always plead for God's justice in our own lives. That's a different story. We want his mercy and grace in our lives, right? But we want justice for those people. But God's mercy and God's justice are both very active within the heart of God. And I believe we're seeing this tension here that exists in the heart of God. Yes, God is a God of justice, but he is incredibly patient. And sometimes he defers the justice for the goodness of his people. Any of you here today that are parents, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because we want our kids to do the right thing. And we tell them what to do. And we tell them what the consequences are if they don't do it. And they still don't do it. But, but we don't fire them. We don't turn them in. No, we show some grace, some patience. Oh, they're children. They're still growing up. I've got to work with them. I've got to talk to them again. Same tension exists in the heart of God between justice and mercy. We see in the ninth verse that the justice will ultimately come if the tree does not become productive. The gardener asks for one more year, and assuming that the owner says yes to it, then at the one-year point, justice will happen to this tree if it is not being productive. Jesus is trying to get across the idea that the health of God's people, the health of the vineyard, the spiritual health, is too important to leave unproductive leadership in place. And so the message here, produce or perish, get cut down. So in the first scene, the message for all the people was repent or perish. In the second scene, the message for the spiritual leaders of the day is produce 
or perish. And let me just tell you parenthetically, your leaders here at Metro take that concept very seriously. The pastors, the staff, the ministry leaders, we get this. This is not a job for us. This isn't for us to get a paycheck. We take spiritual leadership in this place very serious. This is what God has called us to do. This is what God holds us accountable for. And if we become unproductive leaders, we can assume God is going to remove us from our positions. We're pretty clear on that, but you can pray for us in that area because believe me, there's plenty of opposition. But here's the deal, church. In that day, there was this clear delineation between leadership, you know, Pharisees and priests and all, and the people themselves. And there wasn't any crossover between the two. And we're not living in that age. We're living in the age of the church. We're living in the New Testament age, the age of the Holy Spirit. And Scripture makes it abundantly clear that every disciple of Jesus Christ is a spiritual leader. Every disciple of Jesus Christ is called to lead spiritually. Now, I know that I just made some of you nervous when I said that. Because it's way easier to think, well, you pastors, you pastors take care of that. That's not the way the New Testament reads. That is not God's design for the church. God's design is that all disciples are going to be spiritually productive. All disciples are going to be leaders. How does that play out? If you uh, happen to be married, as many of you are, God calls both of you, husband and wife, to lead spiritually in your marriage. That is a responsibility that you both have to each other. If you have children, if you've been blessed with children, God calls you as their parents, the spiritual leaders of the home, the primary spiritual leaders for your children. And I realize our student ministries here at Metro is amazing. 250 students every Sunday from from nursery to 12. Amazing group of leaders and volunteers. It's fabulous. And it's easy to think, oh, that's where the spiritual leadership is for my children. That's false. That's to back you parents up in your spiritual leadership of your children, not to substitute for it. Single people among your peers, you are called to be a spiritual leader. This verse, this concept applies to us today. We cannot push this off on the Pharisees as the folks back in Jesus' day could have done. We are all spiritual leaders. We're all called to be productive. Okay, the third and final scene is a jailbreak. And we're told that Jesus is doing what he normally does on the Sabbath day. He's in the synagogue. And normally if Jesus is in your synagogue, uh, he's going to find his way to the front and he's going to be doing some teaching. And that's where he was. He was up front. And we're told there is this woman there. And we pick out details about this woman throughout the passage. We find out Uh, Jesus' words, that she has been bound by Satan for 18 long years. We don't know exactly what all of that means, but we do know that it had a physical manifestation in in, in her body and that she was disabled. She was unable to straighten up at the waist. So she lived her life and had for the last 18 years lived bent over like this. She could see your shoes. She could hear your voice. You know, she could move around. Uh, Try this for 18 minutes sometime at home, not now, um, and just get a taste, get a taste for what this woman lived with every day of her life for, as Jesus says, 18 
long years. She's there that day. We know that she was in the back because Jesus invited her to come forward. And with her condition, we can understand why she would be in the back and not want to be up where a lot of people could see her. Jesus extended an invitation to this woman. He invited her to come to him. The lady responded to Jesus' invitation. Don't lose that detail. It's, it's, it's tiny, but it's there. She responded to the invitation from Jesus, and she came forward to where he was. And we're told that Jesus liberated her. He, he put his hands on her. He brought physical healing to her body. She straightened up. She stood up for the first time in 18 years, and the first thing she did was she started praising God. She was liberated. Jesus said she'd been bound by Satan for 18 long years, and she was liberated that day. So the message at the end of this scene is be liberated or perish. This woman was kind of experiencing a living death every day of her life, and she was freed from that by Jesus. Without his liberating power, she was condemned to live that way for the rest of her life. So in conclusion here, we look at these three scenes, and each one of them kind of ends with this sort of ominous, semi-hopeful warning from Jesus. The first one says, repent or perish. The second one says, produce or perish. The third one says, be liberated or perish. And in every scene, there is a transformation that is required on the part of the person to actually take Jesus at his word and repent, change direction, quit going that way, start going towards God, or be liberated Receive the liberation that Jesus has for you or begin to be productive in the family of God. When we put these three things together, I think it gives us a pretty complete picture of what the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ should look like. And just in the last couple moments here, I want to rearrange the order of these three scenes to kind of drive that point home. I want to start with this woman and what she experienced and the liberation she experienced. What she received from Jesus physically that day is a picture of somebody entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Her physical liberation is a picture of spiritual liberation. See, Jesus offers to this woman what nobody else can offer to her. She responds to what Jesus has to offer, and she is liberated. She is freed. This is a picture of us spiritually being freed from sin and the accompanying punishment that comes from sin that we rightfully all owe, but that Jesus paid for on the cross on our behalf. That's what this is a picture of with this woman. This is a one-time event. This woman didn't come back every day for Jesus to straighten her up. No, she was, she was fine. She was healthy. She was healed. A person who receives the liberation that Jesus offers receives it once and then moves into, enters into a life relationship with Jesus Christ, which brings us to the next one, which is repent or perish. And so if we imagine this woman, she enters a relationship with Jesus, and then she begins this life of a cycle of repentance. If you were 
If you were here um, when, when um, Pastor Mike spoke about a month ago, he dedicated almost an entire message to the concept of repentance. And one thing he hammered home was that repentance is not a one-time thing. Because, why? Because we're, we're messed up individuals. We continue to sin. We think we're heading in the right direction. We realize, oh, no, 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 this is bad. There's a cliff there. And so we, we repent. We, we say no, and we make a change. And we move in the direction that God is leading us. I have um, a, a very old GPS. I've had it for 10 years. And um, Sometimes um, Steve Bank teases me about it, and, and he's told me before, he says, Pastor Kevin, your iPhone does way more than that GPS does. Why do you even bother to use it? Well, I have a 10-year relationship with my GPS, and my iPhone I've only had for two years. My iPhone gives me much more frustration than the GPS does. But, but it's got this detour button on the bottom. And more than once, I've been going down the road thinking, this is great, I'm making good time, I'm on this journey. And all of a sudden, I look at something ahead, and I say, oh, my goodness, I'm going to be here for a very long time if I get tangled up in that. And I hit that detour button, and it reroutes me. This, to me, is a picture of repentance. Thought this was the right path. I'm realizing, no, this is wrong. This is getting painful. This is destructive. This is hurting me. Scripture's revealing to me that I've chosen the wrong path. Repent. Own it. Head towards God. This is a normal part of the cycle of the, of the life of a disciple. We need to be alert to the fact that in our lives we welcome harmful and sinful practices, and, and we need to be ready to press that repent button when God reveals to us that we need a change. I would go so far as to say that a non-repenting disciple may not really be a disciple at all. If you were liberated by Jesus 10 years ago and you say, no, I've never repented of anything, i got questions for you. I have questions for you. And then finally, as this woman has been liberated by Jesus and enters into this cycle of repentance and receiving God's forgiveness on a regular basis, she is expected to become a producing member of the family of God. Being productive in the family of God, is the normal state for every disciple. Don't relegate that to your pastors. Don't relegate that to certain leaders at your church. Being productive, being a spiritual leader in the family of God is situation normal for a disciple. And, and if you call yourself a disciple, but you can't point to where you're being productive in the kingdom of God, I would say you're probably a very young disciple, or maybe you're not a disciple at all. Now, I just want to make sure before I let you go today that you don't go away from this sermon with this, this conclusion that Jesus is all about condemning people to perishing. Clearly not. Just the opposite is true. Let me just share one verse with you. Uh, John chapter 3, verse 17, which says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You see, what Jesus is offering here in every one of these cases is an alternative to perishing. He's, he's offering liberty. He's offering liberation 
for everybody. He extends that invitation. He's offering the continual forgiveness that comes as we continually repent from bad choices that we have made. And he's offering abundant opportunities to be spiritually productive, to lead well in our worlds. Jesus is not about condemning. He's actually about offering alternatives to condemnation or to perishing. The big question for us, church, then becomes this. How are we going to respond to what Jesus is offering to us? How are we going to respond? Would you pray with me?